Shut up and sit down. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, our topic is um, we're going to do a plot drift. Uh, Tony Dinozo gets his own team. We thought this was timely because these will all be canon divergence um, for the most part, unless we throw out an AU somewhere. Um, and we thought it would just be a really good follow up to last night's conversation about canon divergence versus alternate reality or alternate universe. Um, <clears throat> so um, we're going to get started. I. Uh, Oh, before we do that, a little housekeeping. We got four days left to do your three, roughly three days left to do your um, project files for Rough Trade. Um, it's, uh, oh, and syndication. I have got all of my links for syndication except for iHeartRadio. So I've been approved for Blueberry, Podcast Attic, Apple Podcasts, Google Play Music, and TuneIn. I don't know how iHeartRadio is going to work out, but um, all the other ones are active and live. Um, Spotify has not responded. Um, I'm still in the queue. Uh, but uh, my show is explicit, so that I got as far as I did in, in syndication is pretty cool. Although Google did put a bit explicit, uh, explicit warning on my, on my podcast. <laughs> I was, I expected it, you know, but, um, <clears throat> anyways, I will be adding those links to my website. Um, you'll have direct links to all those places, but if you use those apps, you can just go to the apps and, um, do your subscription and you'll be set to go. You'll be ready to go. Anyways, we're going to get started. Jilly. Are you here? I'm here. You need to start. Uh, because I need an orange. <laughs> Words that have never been said before on the internet. You need to start because I need an orange. <laughs> I'm just being honest here. I mean, you know. It could be worse. I could have needed something else. Yeah, I was talking to somebody about um, they needed code names for um, something they were working on. And uh, they have six people, the six-person team, the SEAL team. Um, and uh, they said, well, what, why don't I use primary and secondary colors? And I said, well, <laughs> are you sure about that? And they said, well, it's that's your six primary secondary colors. That's six. That's six. It's perfect. I said, and who's going to be Agent Orange? Um, who do you want to saddle that with? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which one of your characters is going to be that person? So we 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 just we went with. Uh, <laughs> no, Abby's not on the SEAL team, <laughs> but we went with uh, we went with Greek gods. Which gives us spoiled for choice. They said they thought it was a little bit cliched, and I was like, "Well, but 
colors were a little cliched too. Think of Clue. <laughs> right? Okay. Did you get your orange? Okay, so I'm going first. Um, so there are so many points in the canon where Tony could leave. Um, I think I want to focus first on him leaving, not leaving, but getting his own team based on merit. Um, that somebody says, you're doing a great job. I want to promote you. Um, I was thinking about well, Morrow. Tony's the natural conversion point for that diversion point for that particular um, premise would be when Gibbs comes back, he doesn't step down as team leader. Um, and either he takes Rhoda or she offers him a different team. Yeah. Well, I, mean, I think that would be a really, because um, Cannon set it up that Tony could take that. Um thing is, I think of all the directors, the, uh, weirdly, I think the one least likely to legitimately promote him is Shepard. Um, it's a little bit problematic with Morrow because I think that he is a little early in Tony's tenure. Um, but Shepard was, she had such an agenda and she wasn't really, I don't think, ever really prepared to go toe-to-toe -to -toe with Gibbs. Although, well, but putting him on his own team would isolate him further for her goals. True, but then that's sort of I, I would want him to get that's I said promoted on his merit, not promoted for a director's agenda. Um now what it could do, what it could do is have Morrow um talk Tony into maybe trying another team. Maybe not as the lead right away, but to um that maybe he sees something that he thinks that maybe Tony is letting his maybe he's getting a little too caught up in his trying to make the teamwork mentality. Cause I do think that there was a mentality of Tony. It's certainly my headcanon that he was trying to let Kate do her profiling thing, even though I think he was a way better profiler. Um, he was letting McGee have the computer thing. Although I don't think he ever could have possibly been as incompetent with computers as they tried to make him out to be. Otherwise he and Gibbs would never have gotten through any of the computer stuff before McGee came along. Um, so Mara could suggest that he try, just try working on another team at some point, like maybe Gibbs is off doing it at some kind of conference or something. And that Tony winds up being someone else's SFA and he likes the new environment and that he winds up a year later getting promoted. Maybe in Hawaii. I'm not where mad. He's, where he's nicely <laughs> positioned to, 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 to climb the ladder until 2010 when a certain Navy SEAL shows up. <laughs> Knock on the door. We need to talk. I realize the governor is giving you means and immunity, apparently. Um, but the next time you drive a vehicle onto a ship into the harbor, we're going to have a real big conversation. Big one. It's going to be epic. You're going to be chastised, Commander. <laughs> <laughs> the question is, can you take it? <laughs> um. Yeah, and I think one of the things about Tony and and Steve working together is I think yeah you have to 
be careful about that line where Tony comes across as, um, and I crossed it in my first attempt at one of the one sentence prompts, where he comes across as trying as patronizing and trying to school Steve. And I think it's one thing for him to defend his turf and say, no, I'm not going to let you walk all over my crime scene versus let me teach you how to be a cop because that's not Tony's job. Right. I agree. So, <clears throat> yeah, it's Danny's job to turn him into a cop. It's not Tony's job. <laughs> Especially if Tony and Steve are banging. That's really not Tony's job. That's really crossing lines. So... Um, I think the easiest way for promotion path where you do diverge in the Mario years is um, um, that he winds up on another team for a while, probably as an SFA, you know, lateral transfer, and then he gets promoted pretty quickly. Uh, and because he wouldn't be under Shepard when, um, wouldn't be under Gibbs when Shepard joins the team joins the agency she's not going to have any designs on what he's going to do or not do i don't think he would even be on her radar i really don't he would just be the logical person to take over you know he's got good fit reps and he would be um you know his annual review comes in well and so she's like well yeah he's the obvious person to take over this team when this guy retires and not even think about it anymore I think that if um, this was written, the one thing you would have to do is to be careful about Gibbs' attachment to Tony because transferring him before Kate dies, Gibbs is going to have um, some attachment to um, Tony. Um, it wouldn't be unrealistic for him to try to get him back with Shepard. Uh, but if you do that, then you're also putting him in her crosshairs because I think she used Tony because Tony was important to Gibbs. It was a dig. It was a, an alpha move. Yeah. I can make your favorite do what I want. Um, he could get, you could go with, um, so I, I, I think that there, that the only way I could see him getting promoted during the Morrow years is if it was a lateral transfer at first. I think, well, technically, I think three years in, in, in position, he probably could get promoted to supervisory agent. But, Based on his experience before that, too, as well. Yeah. Yeah. He probably could get a promotion on tomorrow. Yeah. I'm trying to figure out what in season two would be the catalyst for that. Now I need to go pull up my season two episodes. Because it couldn't be before season two. You guys actually have to live with my creepy alien typing. Um, see if any of these jump out at me. Well, potentially chained or meat puzzle. I like Swack, actually. Because he will be coming back into the job recovering um gives uh, at that point having very active field um field stuff going on um shepherd isn't there yet it's still morrow right mm -hmm. um he could do like a swap and say hey gibbs you know you need a you need an active field aid you need an active sfa um and tony's on a desk for the next month three months, whatever. Um, 
So we're going to switch him out over here. And Gibbs thinks it's temporary. Then Morrow transfers out. Shepard comes in. And she's like asserting power and tells Gibbs no when he tells to get Tony back. That works. Especially if and then Tony eventually he gets promoted on his merit. And what it well it, it you've you could tell him no initially, and then when it's time to kind of regroup, um, she realizes he's doing a good job and keeps him in position. She says, "You know, he's the the team has been doing much better since he's been there. I'm I'm not." I'm not going to mess with another team's dynamic just to make you happy. But also, um, Tony was a real obstacle for Ziva and in turn Shepard in those, in that, in that, in, in season three. Um, and if she wants to entrench Ziva into Kate's place, if you still kill Kate, um, or you don't have to kill Kate, uh, because there could no, be, because neither, no, neither Tim nor Kate are really qualified to be SFA. Uh, that could, he, um, Ari could kill the temporary SFA, but then you would still need an SFA. So, if you're going to put Kate, if you're going to put Ziva on the team for, you know, drama. Um, well, I think the Ziva plan, it's always in my head, Canon, the Ziva plan has been long in, in process by this point, Canon, that it's been at least months in the works. So, if I don't think Shepard's going to give up on bringing Ziva into the agency now, she, I don't, and I don't think she'd give up on putting him on Gibbs's team. So I think that if possible, that they would, that Ari would still target Kate. Cause they would Who's have in the to chat have room. Tony was the only reason that Tim didn't open that trunk. Okay. Probably true. But if Tony's not there for months, you can't say that all those um, events would happen the same way. The ripples would be immense. It wouldn't be months. The, the The time between SWAC and Twilight was a couple of weeks. Hmm. Tony because, comes back. So Tony comes. Well, the day to Tony, Tim would even be anywhere near that trunk if Tony wasn't on the team. Could be the TAD agent that's near the trunk that opened the trunk. It didn't have. It wouldn't have to be. It wouldn't have to be. Or maybe that agent stops Tony from opening the trunk. Of Tim. So you don't, I, you wouldn't, I wouldn't automatically ass, um, assign Tony's replacement with incompetence. Just well, but but the only reason Tony noticed the bomb at all, because I think normal protocol would be to open the trunk, and they counted on that. Tony only noticed the bomb because he was lying on the ground, which certainly wouldn't be normal protocol. But it wouldn't have to be the other agent could just have different experience. He could have you could have an agent who's former military who worked as an IED tech. And one of the first things he does is always check with abandoned vehicles is check them. It could be part of his process is he's looking at the undercarriage of the vehicle and he spots the problem long before McGee ever gets into that situation. So the bomb never detonates. So they never lose their evidence. You could make it go better than it went in canon. Not worse. I like that idea a lot. You know, um, I think that Morrow would not give um, Gibbs an incompetent SFA during that time, you know, because Gibbs is working 
the situation, he needs someone on point. Right. So he could tell him, I've got former, and maybe he gives him a former Marine because um, it's somebody that he thinks Gibbs will be able to get along with. Right. Agreed. And, he, and he tells him, he says, this guy was, you know, he was explosive ordnance um, disposal. Um, and he was, you know, he was an EOD tech. Uh, he's, 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 he's next in line for an SFA promotion. Um, try him out TAD if you like him. You know, if you want Denoza back when he's better, we can work that. We talk about it then. If you want to keep this guy, we can talk about it in a month when Denoza is fully cleared for field duty. But you are not working terrorist case with a, your SFA grounded. So, no. So, I mean, I think you could definitely make Morrow a more responsible director as your divergence point. And Tony's off basically maybe working with the cold case unit in Norfolk, which is where the NCIS cold case unit is, is, is in Norfolk. Experiences, bad experiences change you. Um, when I was very young, um, I had an explosive blowout on one of my tires uh, and it nearly killed me. Um, my vehicle was destroyed. Um, it is by the grace of the driver's cage <laughs> in the Ford Taurus that I am here today. The, um, the engine of the vehicle was on the road by the time the car came to a stop. Very good engineering. Damn. I owe the engineer of the Ford Taurus my life. So, because I had that experience with tires, it changed me. When I get in, when I go to get in my vehicle, I check all four of my tires every single time I get in my vehicle for the day. Like when I go outside, I check my tires. Everything looks cool. I don't put air in my own tires. Because the reason it blew out is I put too much air in it. Because it was low and I didn't measure it properly. So to this day, I do not air my I, I do not fill my own tires with air. If my tire has a little something, the little thing goes off of my dashboard tells me my tires need air, I take my butt over to Kia and they fix my tires for me because um it changes you. So it's very reasonable to say that someone who um, was in the Middle East, someone who had a lot of experience with um, IEDs, would not be willing to get in a car uh, without checking it. It wouldn't go near an abandoned car without checking it. That just, you know, you are definitely... And see, I've been doing it for so long that it's, it's like, it's second nature. To look. I don't even question it. The guy at Kia tried to get, teach me how to do my own tires. I went, nope. And I explained to him what happened. And he just said, okay, honey, you just bring your car to me whenever you need. <laughs> yeah, somebody who has that kind of experience, especially considering his experience would be very recent. Because this would be, as I recall, I want to say this would be early 2006. Yeah, this is early 2000. This is like Mayish of 2006, I think, in the timeline. Ugh, I don't want to get this wrong. It's 2005 or 2006. Okay, SWAT 2000, happened 2005. 2005. Yeah. So th this is close enough to the war in Afghanistan and, and Iraq and all that stuff. This is a guy who's probably did a, a, tour, a full tour in the Middle East and is just coming off. Considering of Gibbs's timeline, this is probably a dude that might have seen more actual combat than Gibbs. Yeah, 
gives us Desert Storm, right? So, um, especially if this guy is old enough to have maybe been on his second tour or something when the war started. So that he had... Um, this is an excellent opportunity to to um, to uh, create an original character with a rich background. And I, well, I wouldn't have him be a sniper because I would usually you wouldn't have somebody be OED and be a sniper. Oh, Gibbs, yeah, Gibbs is a sniper. Yeah, SEALs are Navy, not Marine. We said early on that he would be a former Marine. Somebody I think that would be in the age group that I'd be thinking of, SEALs don't get out that young. I mean, if they make it all the way through SEAL training, um, they don't usually... They usually go out on injury. Yeah, or, I mean, they're, they stay in reserves for a while. But So if we're looking at somebody around Tony's age at that time, or maybe possibly slightly younger, if he was a SEAL, he'd still be a SEAL. Um, he could be Force Recon. Yeah, he could be Force Recon. Oh, you mean trained to be OED and Sniper? I think to see, uh, even in SEALs, they tend to, to specialize a little more. I mean, I'm sure everybody on a SEAL team is able to use a Sniper Rifle, but I'm pretty sure that they don't. I mean, even Tony can use a, a Sniper Rifle. I'm he's pretty 30, sure Lady Holder can use a Sniper Rifle. He's 32, and he would be 32 according to my timeline. I, five years older according to his canon birth date but like i said i never used the birth date they eventually came up with for him in canon because it there's a five-year gap in his bio with that with that date but being able to use a sniper rifle and being a sniper in special forces is an entirely different thing um special forces snipers are um they're a special breed and you might be taught to use a sniper rifle um, as a SEAL because they want you to be able to use whatever piece of weaponry you can pick up or, or you have access to in the field but a sniper and that's a different mindset yeah that's a psychological headspace that most people are not fit for and also it's a very very big difference to being a OED technician as I mean, EOD tech, tech is very different than being a sniper both have both require a lot of nerve, but it's just a different mentality. Um, but um, by my timeline, Tony would be about to turn thirty-two when he gets plague, because his birthday's in June. So if he's born in seventy-three, he'd be about to turn thirty-two. If you have more than seventy-two, he seventy-two seventy-three is what lines up with his job history. So he'd be either about to turn thirty-two or about to turn thirty-three, depending upon. Which, because they spell out his life timeline, and when you when you plot that out, when they gave when finally gave his birthday as nineteen sixty eight, you went, what was he no. doing for those missing five years? Now you could, if you, I mean, I think the only reasonable thing I would ever do if I used his canon birthday is put a tour of duty in there, as have him have, have been in the navy or something for a tour. What? Well I, a tour of duty makes sense, but also I I would probably consider an advanced degree. Yeah, that's another possibility. But five years, if you do masters and doctorate work, you can do it. Um, you can do it in five years if you if you go year round. Yeah, but I mean, typically you wouldn't do masters and doctorate. You would 
if you're if you're going for the full enchilada, most people if they know they're going that path, they just go the whole they just go for the PhD. There are a few careers that you have to get the few few degree programs you have to get the master's first, but those are outliers. It would really depend on what he got his master's in, and or if he wanted to get um, a different doctorate. Like for me, for instance, when I finished my um, my undergrad and I was thinking about um, pursuing my ma my master's, um, I actually wanted to to do a master's in um, anthropology, but I wanted to get a PhD in psychology. So it. Which really just depends on what you want to do with it. Yeah, but I mean, like specifically, especially in like scientific fields, most people who, if they know it, it it's a case of do you know? So you like usually I write Tony's having if he gets a PhD, I write him as getting a PhD, and then I mean getting his master's, and then he's working towards his PhD because it's over time. So usually you do one then the other. But like with somebody who's in school to like get a doctorate, usually they just go get the doctorate, and then they might get so like, um, and. I know a couple uh, people who, after getting their MD, got a subsequent master's in something else. But the master's came after. They yeah. got there. They I have a friend MD. who has an MD um, she, in, in psychiatry. She's a psychiatrist. Um, she has an MD. Um, she also has um, a PhD in, um, in social work. Uh, she went back for the MD. Because she burned out doing social work. I could see that. I see my my um, my pops. His he has a PhD in chemistry, but he didn't get his master's till after he got his PhD in chemistry, and then he got something in the soft science just because he was interested in it. So, well, it's sort of soft science, but you know that was he the master's came after the fact. But he didn't get a, he didn't get a master's in chemistry and then a PhD in chemistry. He got just well, yeah, PhD. you wouldn't. You but wouldn't, if you, you wanted to in. give. Tony five years of education you could spread it out that way that maybe he got his his master's in something but then realized that he wanted to do something else instead and went to get a PhD maybe in criminal justice the only thing to account for the five years but that divergence point putting that in as a divergence point uh, where I put it give him that education all at once in the beginning I have a hard time sending him to the police academy in Peoria yeah I agree. The thing is, is if Tony came out of the university system with um, an undergraduate degree in um, physical education, um, if if you do the whole five years, if you if you if you want to account for all five years, you need to do more than a PhD, because <laughs> unless he's a dumbass, and he's not a dumbass. <laughs> you know, it, it doesn't take that long. Um, or if you have to work a job. I mean, if you have to work a full-time job, it could take five to ten years to get a PhD. Yeah, definitely. Um, so I shouldn't have said dumbass because that's, that's not accurate. My bad. Um, but Tony's ambitious and he would be young at the time. Um, you don't double major in a PhD. No. no. Your advisor would frown at you heavily. I'm like, are you crazy? Now you can get PhDs back to back. But you can't do them at the same time, at least not officially. Well, but the under the undergrad. I got a friend who did two masters. She wrote her thesis within the same time per period, but she her master's work for her second master's was technically on the books after. 
you know, the classes that she had to take to to meet the requirements and all that stuff. So, but she wrote her um her papers the same summer because she's crazy ass. Do you mean that he used the five years to get another undergrad degree? Because I don't know anybody who would do that. Except Spencer Reeb. No, I mean, if you haven't achieved a master's, most people don't go and go, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go for the next few years getting another undergrad degree. Oh, that he came, he did two, um, two degrees in undergrad. That's actually a very common trope in NCIS. He has two bachelor's degrees, one in physical education and another in something else. Well, if he did them, if he did them, if he did them at the same time, I mean, that, that would work, but I just mean, I don't think he would use those five years to get another undergrad degree. I don't know why he would. Because if he's going to go and get more education, he would just go and get a master's in something. Well, the point of this five years is that the birthday changes his thing so that he actually would not have been a cop during this five years because of the difference in the birthdays and canon events. There is a, you're right, there's a five-year gap that you got to do something with. You can do, you can do a tour of duty. Um, that he, is not me who incepted you. That would be um, Jilly. The, the whole intelligence thing is Jilly, not me. She's the one he, that talks about him doing the analysis and all that. If he is, if he went into the Navy, he's not going to, especially if he went into Naval Intelligence, he's not going to go to Peoria. So you have to be careful with what you do with that five years that you don't then, if you're planning on having it be an insertion into canon, um, because if you're going with his canon birthday and you want to account for those five years, you can give him an extra education. You could give him a tour of duty. Um, so anything that doesn't really, ch there are things that don't change his trajectory. Um, but if you put him in a position. But if you give him a PhD, he's not going to be in a police academy in Peoria. He's going to be in the FBI academy. Because Tony would be the exact kind of person that the FBI would be looking for. So, I mean, if if he signs up for a tour, so let's say he's got four years, okay, that would account for at least four of the five years. Um, but my, my point is, is that if he, as long as he doesn't get into anything especially specialized in that time, he could wind it back in the police academy when he gets out. Because maybe he decides the military is too much structure. There are ways you could make it fit. It probably... The thing is, that's one of the reasons why I actually never, when I worked out, tried to work out the ripples of what to do with those five years. I never came up with a path that, to me, made sense that didn't take him off the path. Because more education, he's not going to go to Peoria. Um, I mean, unless you have him bumming around for five years and then decides he's just going to half-ass it into being a cop. But the thing is, Cannon is pretty specific that one of the motivations for him for being a cop was... When he was doing the final, when he did the final four thing, um, that he saved that kid. So them him having a five year gap before he decided to do that is a little strange. So that's one of the reasons why I eliminate the gap. That's why I don't make his birthday sixty eight because I can't account for those five years in a way that keeps him on the same course. And the thing is, is that you don't spend one tour of duty in the Navy and become a Navy SEAL. Oh. Um, so, and you don't spend four years in the Navy and become Naval Intelligence. Maybe, maybe as a junior officer, 
but um, but probably not. You I might mean, you might get into naval intelligence, but you're not going to just. They don't put people in those positions that they think are going to. I mean, that, those are kind of the positions of career navy. That, that, yeah, they don't career expect, military. They don't. They don't put you in that position if they think you're going to stop and go be a cop. Being a SEAL is about two and a half years of training. The SEAL part of it alone. If you get past BUDS, which is about six months, you got about another two years of training to go to be a SEAL. And they don't put that. And most people have been in service for some amount of time before they get accepted to BUDS. So you're talking, you've already got like a tour done by the time you be a SEAL. They're not going to be so happy if you get up and leave and go be a cop in Peoria. I mean, because um, it takes upwards. I was, um, there's a... Uh... There's a lot. Um, there's a scene in Iterum where um, Declan Frost is talking about um, the economics of sending a trained group of men through the Stargate and how um, one of the people at the table said that they couldn't have a UAV because of how much it cost. And he, la he laid it out and he said, you know, it takes a million dollars to train a Navy SEAL. So when you send a highly trained group of people through the gate, you are send, you're sending between four and six million dollars out every time you do it. Because it wasn't like they were sending, I mean, at Stargate, these were the cream of the crop. These were, these were highly trained individuals, highly educated individuals. Every, I mean, even SG-1, if you count all the education, um, and the training, right. That the forward placement always fucked me up. Um, just SG1, not counting Tilk, on Earth probably costs between four and six million dollars to educate, plus continuous training. So yeah. Well, yeah, so I it, counted Jackson. So I mean, it's his it, education. So yeah, I mean. It's Plus just, their equipment. Go ahead. It's it's just not something that they're. You're, you have to be very careful about what you slot. I mean, I have seen stories where they have Tony, you know, somehow becoming a Navy SEAL in that five years, and then not telling anybody, or getting an MD in that five years and doesn't tell anybody. Um, uh, you know, like he's working at a doctor on the weekends, and working at NCIS during the week. Uh, I mean, yeah. these are, these things exist, but I just they don't make they don't make a ton of sense to me. Um, My suspicion of um, disbelief fell off the cliff. Right, that Tony Tony's working as a doctor in the ER on the weekends. Yeah, me too. Uh, and and yet, Cannon proceeds apace. Tony becomes a, a Navy SEAL, and somehow he goes from being a Navy SEAL to going to work in PR. And I'm not denigrating cops. I actually really I have an absolute admiration for anybody who goes into civil service of any kind, but especially a civil service where you get shot at um, or put out fires. I'm just, I'm just saying that, that once you're trained beyond what you would get at the police academy, it's weird to me that they would be happy about somebody taking that kind of step back. They would question his motives. What are you doing? Um, so you just have to be careful if you're going to try to fill in that gap. I consider that to be a very, um, problematic thing that Canon did that they did not give us that five years and no, no explanation for it. And then, and then arbitrary. So we're all assuming his birthday is sometime between 71 and 73. And then they just lazily said that his birthday was the exact same as Michael Weatherly's. And my eye twitched because <laughs> I'm like, 
No, that's not how that works. I mean, there. I've read I've read a couple of stories where he did a big undercover stint, um, and during that five years, like he joined the FBI first, and the FBI burned him, and so when he finished his undercover stint, he went and worked as a cop, which helped. Ex I think that was also to help explain his quick acceleration through the ranks because he came in supposedly unexperienced, but he, you know, became detective very quickly because he was already a fully fledged FBI agent, but he left. So. Uh, that's problematic for other reasons. Um, like, how does the background check not reveal that he was a former FBI agent? You know, and those things don't disappear. So. You could lampshade it and say that Morrow knew and chose not to tell Gibbs. As team leader, Gibbs wouldn't be exactly, wouldn't necessarily be privy to a full background check. If information is considered classified. True. I mean, one of the things in uh, Baltimore that Gibbs does is he has Pachi run a background on, on Denozo. So, um, now, but if anything's certainly covered up, but if there was classified information, I think he would at least know that there were things he couldn't get his hands on. Yeah. So I tend to, because of the problems involved, the easier course of action is to just make the birth date based upon the number, the amount of the amount of light backstory Cannon gave us, which puts his birthday in seventy-two or seventy-three. So I usually go with seventy-three, just because. That's well, not usually. I always do. I always go with seventy-three, just because. Um, because I try to be consistent with my own character profile. I'd have to have a reason for not doing it then. And uh, that's what I always do. So he would be about to turn 32 when he got the plague. So that is, uh, I think, a good divergence point. Um, Swack, I actually that's a really, I actually really like that divergence point. I like Morrow getting more invested and saying, no, Gibbs, you can't let him come back to work. Are you crazy? Gibbs, like, he's bored out of his mind. Well, then we're sending him to Norfolk to work on cold cases. He's really good at them. And nobody's going to be shooting at him and we won't get sued. Right? And then Tony could solve a couple of really big, high-profile cases that never that were cold. Like he sits there and just goes, oh, yeah, this is what's going on. And he, all of a sudden, he's Marl's like scratching his head going. And he asks him, is this who's been solving the cold cases on your team? <laughs> and then he gets a promotion. Gibbs is like, he gets bored. <laughs> How else am I supposed to manage him? Every time and he gets bored, I throw a cold case at him. It works. <laughs> Because I, my, it's my headcanon that when Tony gets a hot lead, I think this is how it would work. If he gets a lead on a cold case, the whole team picks up the case and they work it. So it wouldn't be obvious tomorrow, unless he's reading the reports, why Gibbs' team has a high cold case closure rate. Cold case closure rate. Um, and so Morrow is sort of like, all of a sudden Tony's solving cold cases down there, left, right, and center. And he's like, and then he talks to Tony and says, I'm going to have to promote you. You understand this, right? <laughs> And Tony's like, no, I don't promote me. I don't want any responsibility. Are you crazy? Too late. And then Morrow can just go, well, you should have stayed at home and finished healing, but you're the one who was bored. So now you're getting a promotion. He's getting a, a punishment promotion. 
Like one of one of my favorite lines in the shorts is when Steve sums up Vance sending um, Tony to Hawaii by saying, "So he promoted you out of his face." <laughs> okay, so we got Morrow covered. Um, the Morrow era covered. I don't think there's really another great pot point. You could do that. Tony needs like a change of pace after chained and does really well on another team for a while. Um, and that earns a promotion that way, but it's not as, I don't think it's as clean a path as swag. Cause I do think that there was probably an emotional tipping point for Tony and chained that I think is certainly not explored in Canon and he could like be struggling and Morrow sends him somewhere for a change of scenery. So that could work. Okay, so let's look at the Shepherd era. Oh, Shepherd. Ah, uh, Shepherd. Um, she's not going to promote him anytime in season I do three, I don't think, unless he's unless he's looking into Ziva. I think there are two instances that would make her want to get him get him out of the way, and she couldn't. It would be difficult for her to fire him. Um. Because he does work for the federal government, and there and there is a procedure for that, and he would not have done anything to earn it. And she doesn't want to draw attention to herself, but because of, because of her own agenda. So, if Tony's a problem, if he's causing too much of a wave with Ziva, or he tells her no to the undercover op, um, she's going to promote him out of her um out of her face, get him out of the way. Okay. So if he, he probably if he's gonna look into Ziva, it would probably be when he's suspicious of her. So that would be early season three. If it's turning down the undercover op, that would be early season four. I like actually I like the idea of him being, you know, um coming out of boxed in and saying because I just recently wrote a boxed in tag, um, which will go on my site whenever Julie finishes hers. <laughs> um, Julie's almost done. She just needs to. Fix, <laughs> she needs to fix one thing, and she will fix it. <laughs> but uh, and he just like he's like, um, actually, Gibbs, I can't go into the fields with somebody who can't hit the broad side of a barn. I am questioning every single bit of her um, vaunted Mossad training. And she opened the only fire. person she managed to shoot during was that situation me. was me. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. She opened fire in a metal box, Gibbs. What does this say? Is that the way they train them in the sod? So either she's an idiot or she tried to kill me. Or herself. So I had no desire whatsoever to be in the field with her. Um, so I'm going to go over here and you can pick out a new SFA to get killed. <laughs> I mean, just fuck all that noise. <laughs> it's kind of actually my headcanon that Ziva wasn't a field operative. Her job, she was handling her own brother. Can we talk about um, nepotism a little bit here? 
she was the handler for her own brother. I don't think she was much of a field operative before she came to NCIS. And also, I think if she was, she was utilized as a honey trap. Yeah, I think that's probably true. And maybe one of the reasons why her father, part of the deal with her father and Jenny Shepard was that she get more training. As for all of Ziva's, basically, basically she was getting, she was, all for all of her bluster, she was at NCIS to get trained how to be a field operative. Because of the experience she said she had, she should have hit some of those agents who were firing at them, those, those people tied to Al-Qaeda. And the only person who shot anybody was Tony. Well, she shot Tony. <laughs> but she wasn't aiming for him, which makes it worse. Phoenix, actually, I think she um, actually did a very good job of handling her brother. Her brother did exactly what he was supposed to do. And when his job was finished, she killed him. It's true. She would have done she would have done time in the army. Um but it clearly didn't make her much of a marksman. I do know I know there's compulsory service in Israel, but I don't know how what the how long the service is. There's a I assume there's a minimum amount of time. Two years, okay. Well, I don't think they were I don't think they recruited her. I think her father just put her in, you know, like like he did all his kids. Like all his other children. That he used as cannon fodder. Yeah, A plus parenting. But compulsory military service doesn't equal a good shot. Nor yeah. does it equal a good soldier. Um, yeah, did like Gibbs break Eli David's heart? <laughs> What's up? Why couldn't he just write in his journal about it like other people? <laughs> so one in a long list of people that Gibbs fucked over. I don't know why Gibbs doesn't love me. <laughs> I put forth my best effort. Queenie, that may be the crackiest idea I've ever heard. <laughs> Eli David emo blogging. <laughs> Under a pseudonym? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> hashtag romance scorn. <laughs> oh, Claire. <gasps> Go to the corner. Oh, my God. <laughs> I don't know what your preferred booze is, but somebody take it away. <laughs> <laughs> you guys are all just going to wind up in the corner. We're just going to send you all over there. His eyes are still so cold. <sighs> you guys are terrible trolls. He got married again. I don't know how I'm going to live with myself. <laughs> but you know what, though? Actually, um, Vance has more of a history with Eli David than Gibbs does. But (laughs) 
Although it's more, it's more amusing him waxing poetic over Gibbs, so than waxing it is. poetic it over totally over Vance, because Jackie Vance would go all the way to Israel and probably gut him for that. But <laughs> him emo emo blogging over over Gibbs is oh fresh. as get in the corner. <laughs> oh, no, but you know you could you could you could have Eli's emo blog um, f- going through several years of canon, right? My love was blown up today, <laughs> and people wonder what that's a metaphor for. It's not a metaphor; it literally happened. He doesn't. He no longer remembers me. Oh, NCIS fandom. If Queenie shows up on AO3 with Eli's emo blog, you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) That would have to be, I think you should name the series that, Queenie. This is just my opinion. Is Eli's emo blog is the series, and you could have several stories in it. (laughs) There we go. She she says, challenge accepted. Sandra says he would love the blown up thing. Who gets a second chance at a first impression? No, I am not participating in these shenanigans. But you guys can do it if you want. You can we can relay the hell out of Eli's emo blog if Queenie wants help. <sighs> I will. I will definitely show up to watch. <laughs> mm mm mm. Make sure <laughs> one, of, one of Eli's most um, avid followers has to be Tim McGee. Oh my god. Well, because Tim McGee wrote fan fiction about Gibbs. <laughs> what if he unintentionally stumbles on Gibbs being a secret email blogger? Because he's so inspired by this email blog that he reads. He's like, what if, what if Gibbs Secret Life, or pardon me, LJ Tibbs Secret Life was as an emo blogger? <laughs> and so LJ Tibbs has a secret emo blog. <laughs> now, fandom, now NCI's fandom, I'd like to apologize. <laughs> <laughs> it went too far, but it's probably too late. <laughs> But hell, McGee did write fan fiction about Gibbs. <laughs> I don't remember who wrote this, okay? I'm going to apologize for this because I don't remember who wrote it. What I do remember about it... <laughs> <laughs> oh my god. It absolutely would be called Dibs as a pairing. <sighs> Eli David and Jethro Gibbs, the Dibs pairing. <laughs> There is. If you ever have you read the story where McGee signs away the rights to um, Deep Six to the Hallmark Channel or Lifetime or something like that? No. Okay, so they make a book about deep, make a movie a Lifetime or Hallmark movie. I can't remember which about Deep Six and the team, right? Except it's a little dark for that channel, and then they make a follow-up TV show about LJ Tibbs and his Tiblets, but they don't want to have, you know, the big surly grumpy guy. So they make him a very nurturing sort who may, who makes people like, makes his team like hot chocolates and gives them hugs and stuff. Well, Gibbs doesn't know about any of this, right? Until, 
a suspect um, won't take him seriously <laughs> asks for a hug in interrogation. Because <laughs> <laughs> everybody has figured out who he is, right? Because the characters look about like the team on the TV show. The TV show is pretty popular. So <laughs> this guy's just kind of looking at him going, you're him. He goes, can I have a hug? <laughs> And Gibbs loses his mind. You're like he my favorite mind. character on TV. You're like the dad everybody wants. Can I have a hug? But I cannot remember the who wrote the story. I can remember where I read it. It was... If anybody remembers Yeah, it was Wormhole Extreme for NCIS. So for those of you listening to the podcast, if we can find it, it will be in the link library. But, like... At this point, I have no idea where I would even look for it. Wormhole Extreme. Um, in SG-1, there is an alien on Earth. And he's been living there a while. And he knows about the Stargate program. And he wants to be in Hollywood. So he pitches an idea for a TV show about a group of people who go through a wormhole to other worlds. And he calls it Wormhole Extreme. And when the SGC finds out about it, they're like, Martin, you can't do this. And he's like, well, it's like plausible deniability, right? <laughs> <laughs> but the best part about that episode is when they go to watch some filming, the the actress playing the part of the Carter Carter character says, okay, um, if he's been phased out of reality, why isn't he falling through the floor? <laughs> if he can walk through walls, why isn't he falling through the floor? And they're all like, <laughs> it was so meta. <laughs> it was great though. So, Wormhole Extreme was like the. Um, it's from two thousand and one. Um, at season five, episode twelve. But that isn't the first episode Martin appears in. Martin's actually a, an alien refugee on Earth. Um. I think he has a pretty sad backstory, actually. Um, but and then at one point, they're actually pitching episodes to Martin, and I'm not sure if it was in the same episode or not. Um, and, like, are they pitching ideas to him? And one of the ideas they pitch is actually Farscape. <laughs> okay, so he's in three episodes. Here's the link to the wiki page, and it lists the three episodes that he is in. And the episodes he is in, for those listening, is Point of No Return, Wormhole Extreme, and 200. Allegiances. His people in the past. His people. Okay. Thank you for being specific. Yes, it's Mozzie. Yes, yes, yes. Why do you, now it's my okay? Someone asked in the chat room. Also, will anyone explain why all the aliens speak English? It's my headcanon that, with the exception of the gate on Abydos, um, which Raw probably maintained in some way, like kept it isolated, that all the other gates in the um galaxy, uh, give travelers a common language, and they're probably not speaking English. Yeah. Sort of like some sort of all speak that's built into the DHD. Um, but, you know, I always thought that um, Farscape's method of handling that was really slick. That, you know, when John first gets on the ship, he nothing makes sense. 
Um, and then that little, um, uh, the little bot st stabs him in the foot with, um, R um D DRD stabs him in the foot with a translator. <laughs> and then he understands them all. It's excellent. <laughs> One of the coolest things I read about the gate translation thing is that um, when in that they never really noticed how much of a problem it was in the Milky Way, but on Atlantis, they realized that they were actually corrupting the natives of Pegasus with um, Earth's junk language. <laughs> like all kinds of slang ended up in the Pegasus natives' mouths, and they were like, How the hell do they know? <laughs> but you could also say that on Abydos, because the population there had never traveled through the gate themselves, that they weren't exposed to the gate speak or whatever it is, the gate language, the common tongue, uh, because uh, the all gate, yeah, um, because even the version of uh, the language they spoke from Earth was not the same because it had changed and matured as, as they grew as a population. But none of those people were allowed to travel through the gate, which is why they didn't speak um, a language that anybody understood. And that's lampshading. There you go. <laughs> I'm going to teach you guys whether you want to learn or not. <laughs> Speaking of, someone asked me, um, I got an email um, talking about how much they really enjoyed the fandom episodes of my podcast, but they found the writing episodes boring and wondered why I did so many of them. And I responded, because I want to. If you don't like it, skip them. <laughs> wow. Okay. In the in the immortal words for, for um, of Pink, I'm not here for your entertainment. It's just you and your hand tonight. Well, and there are probably, conversely, there are probably people who only tune in for the craft podcast. Right. So so what? And there may be some people who only tune in for your stitch and bitch sessions. Which are kind of rare these days. Yeah. True. <laughs> Dark, that sounded ominous. Okay, so I like the idea of of him leading, uh, um, him leaving um, after Swack a lot. Uh, I like the idea of him leaving um, after Boxed In because I like the Swack for potential. I like the Boxed In because he's fucking fed up and he's not going to take it and he's not going to let Gibbs's bad decisions get him killed. Oh, the saga of Brad. Brad was is a person in um, Germany who decided that um, he wanted to give me advice on how a 16-year-old girl would react in a situation during my writing of Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. Basically, he told me that he, he mansplained to me how a 16-year-old girl would feel um, in a situation where she's being offered an adoption. 
um, he didn't like the choices I made in Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. Um, yes, Brad is the one that got Germany banned. Um, for like six months, I banned the whole country. Yeah, I mean, because he obviously has a real deep understanding of how a 16-year-old girl would feel about, um, having abusive parents and wanting, you know, um, having someone she deeply respects adopt her. She he also said that her response to not wanting to be um under the uh under the guardianship of Potter Redoubt because of her personal interest in Harry Potter, he he found that um unrealistic. And I'm like, you've obviously never been a 16-year-old girl. <laughs> That was probably the most realistic part of that whole conversation. <laughs> anyway, he mansplained to me. And I told him that um, I wasn't interested in his opinion. And then he told me that I was a fascinating specimen. Right? So I looked up all the IP addresses um, for Germany. And I banned... A range of IP addresses because he kept getting into my site after I kicked him out. And for six months, um, I got bitched at from people in Germany who couldn't read my site. Well, he brought this. The thing brought is, is Hermione didn't even say that she wanted to stay in this bad situation because number one, she currently wasn't in it. She was in school. And number two, she was, she knew at this point she was be being given options, but she decided already that no matter what other options she had, that she wasn't interested in putting an obstacle between her and this boy that she liked. But you also have to keep in mind at that point, there was a lot of soul magic, soulmate magic in play for both of them, even though she didn't know it. Um, and it should have been obvious from my foreshadowing. <sighs> Brad, <laughs> if you're listening, how dare you not get my foreshadowing? Yes, and man Brad. explained to me what a 16-year-old girl feels like. Appreciate it. So that's where the clan Brad. So each, Well, at first it was just Brad. But then we, the next time you got an asshole, it's like he's a member of the clan Brad. So we yeah. named the whole clan of assholes after him. Right. So I did find the story. Um, I have to say... I in reading it, I'm like I'm trying. I try to remember the context for the rest of the story, and it's because I actually only read to the point where Gibbs gets the hug from that suspect. So I, I think I was reading the story as it was being posted, and I got tired. Maybe got tired of waiting for it to be finished. I don't know, but I've never read the last half of it, and it is very long. Um, what's the word count on this? 182,000 words. Wow! Someone tagged my um. My Bradley in UID. They were like, ha, ah, Bradley, ha, ha, ha. Because <laughs> the guy that um, sexually harasses Nebula is named Bradley. Yeah. <laughs> so it's in the link library. The story is I Shouldn't Have To by S.A. Sundance. Um, it is actually a very angsty story. So this is the comic relief that's happening kind of in the background. The Brad. The Brad is nothing like the Chad. Or the, the Chad. The Chad can be a thing. But then, yeah, there was this other asshole, and I was calling him, let's say his first name was Gerald. I was calling him Gerald of the Clan Brad. 
Like, you know, Duncan of the Clan McLeod. Yes. And then we had a and then we had a Robert of the Clan Brad. Yeah. We may have had more than one Robert of the Clan Brad. Either more that or Robert. Yeah, I think we have had more than one. And one Robert was so notable in his in his bradness <laughs> <laughs> that I started putting an asshole Robert in every story practically. I mean, he was like he spread his assholery too. It it, it went beyond my sight. He hit rough trade, he hit Jilly's sight. <laughs> oh yeah, he he was he was Mm. Yeah, I don't I don't come down on the Brads because he didn't do it to me, but I do come down on the Roberts. <laughs> so, I mean I even make it in yeah, I think it's an if found where Matt says something like what does he say? He says something like, you know Is it about is it about the name I'll call you Tony if you want? I'd even call you Robert if you asked me to, and you know how I feel about it. He looks at his brother and says, You know how I feel about Roberts. <laughs> <laughs> and it's never explained, right? It's just, it's just a, it's just out there. You know how I explain it, feel about Roberts. There's, there's a line in Finding Atlantis where John confesses that his first crush was on this guy named Todd, and originally I had it Brad, um, but I changed it to Todd because you know Todd the the race, um, yeah. But it was originally Brad, and. <laughs> For my own amusement. <laughs> Margaret. <sighs> but yeah, I really enjoy nothing more like being like having um, a man of some age uh, mansplain to me what a 16 year old girl would feel like. Yeah. Yeah. Fortunately, I've only ever had good experience with Tyler, so I'm 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 not feeling the need to to have, you know, a bunch of like limp dick Tylers in my stories or something. Okay, so we've got. I've rarely you... met a David who wasn't a son of a bitch. Um, Just say it. <laughs> I have. I have. I have. I've got several Davids in my life who are sweethearts, so I'm I'm good oh, with the good. Davids. That's good. Um, okay, so we've got did we come up, so the Jenny either promoting him to get him out of her face. We've got after boxed in, which I think is a great point because I do think I agree with you that he would start questioning Ziva's competency after what went down there. And then um, the other thing would be you could definitely go with the cannon path that he just rolls his eyes. And he, you know, when he gets offered Rhoda, he takes it. There's that path. Some people have explored that where Tony takes Rhoda and done it well. Um, there aren't a ton of moments because I mean, once the thing is, once once Tony participates in Jenny's op, um, especially since it was unsanctioned, I think anything, any promotion would be tainted. You know, I think that people would look at it as that he got rewarded for participating in an illegal operation or an unsanctioned operation. How well known was that unsanctioned op originally? Well, once it blew up, it not it wasn't known by anyone at first. But once once Tony's car blew up and they thought he was dead on an unsanctioned op, and then they just talked about it out there in the bullpen, I'm pretty sure the whole agency eventually found out. 
Did now? Here's my question: Did Tony know that the op was un, unsanctioned? No, but he should have. Should have because he he had enough experience. This is actually a, a real suspension of disbelief issue. He had enough experience to know that being given a cell phone where the only backup he had, the only person who was going to answer his calls was the director of the agency who could at any moment wind up in conference with secretary of defense or even the president and not be able to help him was bullshit. Also that he was expected to do an undercover gig while working his job, his day job. That doesn't make any sense. So he should have suspected. Well, okay. So let's explore that. What if he says no? What if he says no to the undercover op? I do think that she would try to get rid of him, like fire him. I think she tried to. Fi- I think she would try to fire him for cause. But in the event that she didn't go that path because maybe she didn't think she could get it to stick, or that it would draw more attention to her, she could try to. That could be a promote him out of her face thing. Another situation where she might try to promote him out of her face. Well, Jeep, what you said right there is the argument for why she would try to get rid of him. Is she worries that he would report to someone that she's report it to someone that she's trying to do this operation that's unsanctioned. Now, if he's worried about that, the best thing he could do is agree to it and then go around her to get help. Well, here's the thing: um, if she doesn't keep him on, she can't. She has zero control over that situation. I mean, she really doesn't have any control, but she's kind of irrational, right? But if she fired him for saying no to an unsanctioned undercover operation where he would be required to whore himself for a federal agency, um, the likelihood of him not reporting her is zero. Well, he doesn't know about the whoring part, although I think it's implicit. He doesn't, that comes up in season four when he goes to report to her that he's having a hard time with basically not fucking, you know, getting into bed with Jean because he's keeping his distance in that regard. But Jean really is expecting their relationship to move to the next level. And Jenny basically says, well, what's the problem? She's attractive, isn't she? And she does this whole manipulative thing where she's basically telling him, go fuck her. I don't remember what episode that's in, but I distinctly remember her looking at him and going, well, she's attractive. Isn't she your type or something like that? It was really creepy. And he agrees. And at that point, we don't know that it actually is an op, right? Uh, We don't. We find out that there's an operation, and I think the first or second episode of season four, it's been they've been doing the groundwork all summer, and they're talking about it in very vague terms. And you see Tony hanging out with this girl, but it's not clear that she's the op. It doesn't become clear until later. Um, it doesn't become clear till later that Jean is the mark. Um, he does eventually sleep with Jean when Paula gets killed. Yeah. But I think that's because I, my read on that was because he actually did care about Jean and he was just emotionally torn up. Not because he did it because he was ordered to. I think actually, I think that what he would realistically do, if he, cause I, Tony's smart enough to think through the consequences. He says no to her unsanctioned op because it's sketchy. So she's going to have to do damage control. She has. She doesn't read him as well as she thought she did. She could frame him for something. Um, he already has experience being framed, almost expertly framed, and Jenny knows way more than Chip did. So he's got experience with people trying to fuck him over. So 
her courses of action at this point is to try to get a hold of him. Well, and if he thinks, if he reasons that she's doing this for Mossad, doing not the op for Mossad, but that that um, she's getting her intel about um, Rene Benoit from Mossad, he could realize that he could easily, she could easily have him taken out. So I think his reasonable course of action is to be very careful would be to go around her, to agree and go report it. And probably he would go to JAG with it. Not because JAG actually has any authority, but because he probably knows people there that he trusts. Because the actual chain of pet the actual chain of command would be to go to the inspector general, but the inspector general of NCIS reports to the director. So that would be out. So to go above that chain of command, he'd have to go to the inspector general of um, the department of defense, which is the people who runs DCIS, which is how we got to, well, we bring DCIS comes up in something else I'm writing. So some of, some of you may know about the DCIS thing. Um, the Department of Criminal Investigation Services within the um, Inspector General's Office for the Department of Defense um, actually would have the authority to investigate the situation. JAG actually doesn't have any authority to investigate, but I could see him going to them for help. There's no such thing as I, there's an Inspector General. And even if he went to, he could go tomorrow if he trusts Morrow, because Morrow would be He's, he's um, homeland. Yeah. But he, Morrow doesn't have, again, it's a matter of if he were to follow the chain of command, if he feels like he can't go to the inspector general, um, he would either go directly to the secretary of the Navy or he would go to the next inspector general at the chain, which would be Department of Defense. If he's not, if he's looking for advice outside of his chain of command with people he trusts, it would probably either be JAG or Director Morrow, one or the other. It, well, mm, not really, because U.S. agencies do ops dealing with arms dealers on U.S. soil all the time. The issue would be that they're tromp tromping all over the CIA's turf, because Jenny was repeatedly warned off of Benoit by the CIA because he was their um, asset, basically. He was there. She was supposed Did to Tony alone. know that? Yeah. Eventually, he didn't know right away, but he got warned away from the, away from Benoit by the CIA, and he ignored it. They actually took Ducky undercover at one point to play. Um, yeah, and the CIA that and this that, that they were they were basically told then to leave the case alone. Blowback. Yeah, thank you, Ellie. So they absolutely Tony knew that this was not their turf. Um. And so, and again, if NCIS is tromping all over CIS jurisdiction, that would be probably DCIS's lookout, not the FBI. Because investigating, I would think that investigating that would probably be the um, Department of Defense Inspector General. But FBI, maybe, but definitely not Homeland Security. So what, what I would do is drop the ball in somebody else's lap and go to ground. Because she's irrational. He can't trust her. She has Mossad at her disposal. I would just like, hey, look, this is a problem. 
I'm not going to deal with it. I'm going to call HR and go on vacation. <laughs> you got to sort your shit out. <laughs> well, in memories, I dealt with this by um, when, when Tony took issues with Ziva and Jenny to, which is the same time frame, right? Um, when he took these issues to Vance, Vance and Seknav put him on a ship and made him agent afloat so that he, uh, so that he was out of reach of Jenny and Mossad. Very good. It was a very good choice. Because they're, they have to recognize that there's risk here, especially if they can make the connection that Jenny is um, talking to Mossad. She's got, um, she brought a Mossad operative into the agency. So that's not a, that's not a difficult reach. That's not a long reach. And it wouldn't be the first time Mossad killed an NCIS agent, would it? Mm-mm. Or any federal agent, for that matter. I mean, like, Masada actually has a history of killing federal agents on the show. Yeah, at the end of season six, I think, is when Michael Rifkin kills the ICE agent. Um, which it was just, that was like the most stunning thing to me, that when, when Tony kills in defense and there's nobody there to confirm that it was self-defense except of course you know the fact that he was beat to hell whatever um you know mcgee was very concerned and he asked gibbs in the episode he said you know is tony gonna get in trouble and he's and gibbs makes a comment about it being um uh tony's word against the dead man's i was like uh Really? That's the line? That's what you're going to go with? It's his word against the dead man? So that's about what happened in that room? It's Tony's word against the guy who murdered an ICE agent. Who was warned repeatedly to get off of U.S. soil that for some reason they didn't arrest him. Now, if they stick Tony on a boat, instead of him getting together with Gibbs, he could have a SEAL team that's being transported to their next target. Right, because this is five or six years, six years before the events of the season opener of Hawaii Five-O. So Steve is uh, still very much an active duty Navy SEAL. Four years. If it's early, it's between four and five years, depending upon which, which part of season four you use. No. Between three and four years, depending upon which part of season four you use. What do you mean they met? They, the Seahawk thing was season six. So there's nothing There's nothing that says that Tony was sent to the, that same aircraft carrier. I mean, you could, but there's no, and there's no it, indication that actually that Tony Genozo has ever met Steve McGarrett in canon. Yeah. Also, it's worth, I, one of the reasons I wouldn't use the Seahawk is to avoid the confusion between his actual assignment in canon versus his non-canon assignment two years prior. So I wouldn't use the same ship, personally. Steve is working Naval Intelligence and Fugitive Retrieval when we first meet him in um, Hawaii Five-O. He is an active duty Navy SEAL. Where he was five or six years before that, the canon Not of the show indicates that he was in the field operating as a Navy SEAL. Because SWAC and um, let's see, let's see, the Kill Airy 
and the boxed in that takes place in 2005 to 2006, right? Well, Steve is in fugitive apprehension in 2010. But even if he was, even if the hunt for the Hesses did go on for five years, it wouldn't have been five years full time. Because that would be a really sad thing if they had seals after Hess for five years full time and didn't catch him. So I think it's more likely that they pursued leads about Hess when it came up. And those leads would have been tasked by NCIS. And that seals would have been deployed when they had concrete information they could work on. Um, that doesn't mean that Steve was sitting on his ass waiting to be tossed at Hess. Not sure what your point is with that, about Wofat. I mean, Wofat wasn't even a player on the board at this point for Steve McGarrett. Wofat doesn't go, doesn't end up on Steve McGarrett's radar until Wofat puts himself on Steve McGarrett's radar. Which I think is some kind of jealous mommy issue thing. So Steve, um, I think Steve would have been um, sometimes sent to, his team could easily have been sent after Hess. And it could have been a frustration point, right? That they kept missing him when they got sent out. But I bet you that 80% of their missions had nothing to do with Hess. Yeah, because you don't let, you don't let seals sit on ice. While you wait but for, that, that, that's not their job. That's not, not for them job. to have actionable intel. It just doesn't work that way. And well, odd, you know, Doris, Steve's biological mother, I wouldn't call him her mother, you know, the mother because she abandoned him and Mary. She raised Wofat. She abandoned her own children to raise Wofat. So. Unfortunate. So Steve. Um, also, it's likely that Steve was not always the team that was sent after Hess because if Steve was on a mission when they got actionable intel on Hess, whatever, whoever was available. Would be sent. They don't stop a mission to send Steve after Hess. So um, I'm assuming what Steve meant by that was that, that the, the thing about hunting for Hess for five years is that they that the, that the Navy, be it NCIS, you know, the Department of the Navy had been looking for Hess for five years. Not that Steve himself had been full time on hunting Hess because that would be tragic. And Very, it doesn't actually make a lot of sense. It'd be a disgusting waste of resources as well. Um, so, yeah. But there's every reason to believe that if you worked it right, that, that Tony could be on a ship um, and run across Steve McGarrett. It works. Yeah, he could have run across Steve in 2005, 2006 time frame. Definitely. And they could have known each other for years by the time Steve lands in Hawaii. Tony could be there when they offer him his choice of positions after that he goes well i'm thinking i might like to be in hawaii because all roads lead to the mothership <laughs> and if they don't they fucking should <laughs> although i do enjoy tony with ian edgerton i do but mothership i mean i like the gunship but i'm really fond of the mothership um I think you have to be careful. I typically, to me, if Steve and Tony met as kids and they stayed close, you get a little bit of a brother vibe going on. A little bit. Um, and if they didn't stay close, there's not a lot of point in having that kind of backstory. I think when you insert something in the backstory, you have to have a point for it, right? 
So either they stayed close from children, in which case you have to deal with how did they not have a brother vibe going on, or they didn't stay close. But I, I don't. But if he stayed friendly with John, it's not like Steve would recognize him. I think that um, I like the idea of John kind of um, being a distant but consistent point in Tony's life after the whole thing in Hawaii and being abandoned. And mm-hmm. that when Tony you know, decides to join the police Academy, he calls John and says, Hey, I, I'm going to join the police Academy, you know? And John's like, are you sure? Because what are you going to do with your degree? And he's like dadding him. <laughs> Cause someone <laughs> needs to, <laughs> what are you going to do with this? What's your master's going to be in? <laughs> and he's, you know, kind of been in the background, kind of pushing Tony. Um, and then when he gets offered the job at NCIS, you know, John McGarrett does a background check on Gibbs and says, okay, I really don't like this kid, but okay, just, just be careful. Well, it, it is my, I've I've done that, that John knows Tony in several stories. It is my headcanon. That's part of the reason why Tony became a cop was because of John, because it's not a super, um, football player to cop there has to be some sort of like impetus for that, some some kind of catalyst. And so I think a strong father figure in his life that was a cop would help explain that choice. I have a plot bunny where um the John and Tony do have this kind of you know background relationship. And when John retires suddenly and starts asking Tony for favors, but then he's like blowing him off on a- answering questions, Tony takes his ass to Hawaii to figure out what the fuck's going on. And he walks in on Victor Hess um, beating John McGarrett and he prevents his murder. Um, and that's how Steve ends up meeting um, officially Tony Donozo for the first time. I like that. And in the Battle of the Five Fandoms and Catalyst, they met at John's funeral, which was much sadder. But Tony was very close to John, and so he went to his funeral, of course, and that's where he met Steve. It's canon that Tony saved that kid in the fire, but why they picked that um, instead of saying, oh, well, like, Tony stopped a... Uh, a kidnapping or something because if he if he saved a kid from a fire wouldn't he be more interested in becoming i don't know a fireman yeah right <laughs> i mean they they tried to make this connection but it actually kind of fell flat so it's there but that's also another thing that cements the timeline unfortunately is that tony was final four when that happened um but that, frankly, if that fire, if if he couldn't be a fireman because of his injury, then how did he qualify to become a cop? Getting to the police academy is physically, it's exa- I intense. Had, yeah. Well, I had a friend who could who she went to go through twice because um, the first time she went through, she got several small fractures in her foot. You got to be physically fit to be a cop. So I don't think that the injury would have prevented if it didn't prevent him from being a cop, it wouldn't have prevented him from being a fireman or a paramedic. Actually with his degree, um, because of the amount of anatomy and physiology and stuff that you have to take, uh, his degree honestly dovetailed better into being a paramedic. Right. I'm not mad at that idea, dark. No, he wouldn't have been able to, it's not a stare thing. I mean, he may have, no, it, you, they're the physical getting through um, 
getting through the uh, police academy is not a cakewalk. And if he w- if he's not able to handle stairs, I don't think he'd have gotten through no. the, the physical training requirements to go through the police academy. I mean, we're, we're kind of left to believe in canon that his knee never really bothered him in canon. So, um... Maybe they just it initially prevented him from getting um like uh what's it um, right he he lost his window he he didn't go for the draft right so he lost he didn't get drafted so he didn't go into pro ball right because if you if you miss I mean that's one of those things you miss your slot he's not going to go in the draft that's what that that's legitimately a real consequence. And walking onto a team during camp is very difficult to do, and he would have been too injured at that point to do it outside of the draft. So by the time he was physically capable of doing it, his window had expired. Yeah, and he would have known that. So he'd have been looking at other opportunities, what, what else he was going to do. So, um, exactly why a cop. It doesn't really track, which is one of the reasons why the, him knowing John McGarrett, at least, is part of my head canon is because John was a very, a cop was really good to him at a time in his life when a lot of people weren't good to him. And that's why he became a cop. Because if Tony had had a lot of positive role models and stuff, like at the military academy, I think he'd have gone into the military. He was very influenced by his male role models in his life. So that leads you to believe there was a cop there somewhere that influenced him heavily. And John McGarrett is is excellent is in an excellent position for that. Excellently placed, yes. He'd have to, to have been he'd have been a, a rookie cop, a, a patrol an officer. He'd have been a he'd he'd have been in, in, in uniform at that time. Steve is what, two or three years younger than the way where I cast Tony as being? I think I want to say Steve's birthday is nineteen seventy five. Somewhere in that area, yeah. So it would make him two years younger younger than the way I cast than than where I've put Tony. Willow's saying 74. So, yeah, I mean, they're pretty close in age. I think that... Um, now, they're the, saying that he's his birth year is between 76 and 77. Hmm. Okay. But still, I think that, you know, John would, John would have been in uniform. He would have... Because um, he was a cop when Doris met him, right? I think so. So he'd have been in uniform, or you know, pretty maybe a lot, kind of high up in the uniform. He gets called to the hotel um, to deal with that situation, makes a connection with Tony, and maybe even keeps him from ending up in a temporary foster home situation. Um, whether or not Tony, whether or not Steve really remembers. Tony would be up for debate because of his age, but Tony would probably remember him at least briefly. Like, oh, there was this little kid and a baby because Mary would have been much younger. Okay, so... All right, in canon, in canon, there's a screenshot in the first ep- in the first season that puts his birth date as 1977. Steve McGarrett? Yeah. And but the, there's somebody who actually pulled that apart based upon all the other information that um, the show gives out. He has to be at least a year older. So I'll give so you guys. The, I'll give you guys the link if anybody's curious. 
um, about how this person went through and deconstructed based upon all the information Canon gave and where it contradicts. But they show the screenshot and the screenshots right there that shows that his birth date is um, uh, March 10th, 1977. But realistically, I think he's a year older than that, so 76. Which would put him three years younger than Tony. So in 85, which is when I have Tony in Hawaii, um, Steve would be nine. Did I math right? 76 to 70 to 85? Nine. So yes, I nine. You might remember meeting the kid, but I don't think they would have um, necessarily... I mean, you could write them as connecting and like, you know, being like pen pals or something, but I don't buy it. No. I don't think he's enough, he has enough time, you know, Tony's from the mainland. Um, he's not going to be there long. Um, he's probably traumatized and a little asshole-ish. Because you know how Tony... I mean, I think even at, at, at that age, he would have responded... Um, so Tony's 16 at that point. He wouldn't have had time for a little kid. He'd have been furious and you know, no, his no, dad no, Tony, left him. And Tony was 12. Tony's 12. She's asking that the, there was a question, when does Steve get sent to the mainland? And he was 16 or 17 when he gets sent oh, to the mainland. Oh, okay. So Steve goes, so, so Tony is 12 when that happens. That actually made more sense to my head, Ken. I was like, really? He's 16? But no, okay. He's 12. So if it's 85 and Steve is nine, um, but the way I handled it in Catalyst is how they'd never met was that Steve was at summer camp. Makes sense. So, but Tony had met Mary is the way I did it in that one that Tony and Mary had met because she wasn't at camp, but Steve was. So, yeah, I mean, the thing is, that's one of the things they talk about in the web page that I linked was that there's contradictions there about how old Steve was because they talk about him being sent to back to the mainland on when he's 16. But if he's varsity football, he probably would have been 17. Um, so there's some contradictions because of course there is because you know why why wouldn't there be because it's not like they have a, they made a character profile obviously they just made it up as they went no series bible not a surprise the lack of care in details like this um, can be annoying to a writer but it can be really disconcerting to a reader they might not even know why they they find it annoying or irritating but they will so as a writer i think it's really important that you pay attention to these little details and make your character profiles and have some consistency and that's one of the things it's like even when when you're since we're talking like a canon divergence thing right um one of the things you have to do is i like changing tony's tony's birth year to be 72 or 73 is not does not contradict canon in any way even though they eventually said that his birthday was 68 roundabout um they didn't actually give it in they didn't actually sync that up as we talked about with his actual the actual his biographical information so it left this big old gap of four to five years so when you're doing canon divergence, you actually can create more problems for yourself to not resolve these inconsistencies. It's just try to resolve them in a way that doesn't contradict canon, right? And a birth date does not contradict canon events. It is resolving a canon, um, I would call, a, a, it's almost like a the, the 
visual equivalent of a typo, right? It's like, did they mean to put it to be 68? That doesn't actually make a lot of sense. But it doesn't actually contradict anything in the canon timeline or any canon event. It's just to saying, okay, we're gonna we're gonna deal with his age in a way that fits the the events. Um, same thing with Steve's age. Uh, canon clearly that one image clearly shows that Steve's birthday is 77. But when you do the math, 77 doesn't quite work based upon other things they drop down. So do what works for you, right? If 76 makes more sense to you or it works better for your story, do 76. If you know it doesn't matter one way or the other, go with 77. But you're still going to have like a little bit of a disconnect about 77 since it doesn't really gel with when he left the island. So just, you know, I've even seen his birthday being in 75 sometime. And so whoever put, put it in 75 gave a reason for it. It made a lot of sense. Just try not to contradict um, events in canon. That's what you're trying to do with canon divergence. But where they have given you contradictory information, you're going to have to reconcile it some way. And it is less, it is less, has less impact on canon to, for me to make Tony's age match the timeline they gave us in canon versus having a five-year gap that I cannot explain in a way that keeps him on his canon trajectory. That was super, super intrusive into your hygiene. I'm just saying. <laughs> right. <laughs> of course I wash my hands. I wash my hands so much. I actually had to buy extra moisturizing soap to combat um the hand sanitizer and soap that I use. Um and I also have to use like gold bond lotion for my cuticles. Otherwise they get all dried and cracked from all the hand washing that I do. Cause I have OCD and that's what we do. <laughs> There are people who are supposed to keep track of that, but um, I think that often those people uh, get ignored for the sake of expediency or um, out of frustration or because um, it infringes on the author's voice when there are 15, 25 writers over a period of two decades working on a story like NCIS. <sighs> You get a new writer into the thing and they want to they want they want to put their mark on the, the storyline or the story arc and the characterization. Um, there's nobody there with enough authority to say, no, you're violating continuity. We're not doing that. No. You may not create this problem. And sometimes even when they have a Great series picture. Bible. Yeah, sometimes even when they have a series Bible, they don't actually um, make anybody follow it. So, yeah, they did a lot of odd things on NCIS that didn't quite make sense, like um, not caring that he, um, that he, you know, that there'd been the pneumonic plague thing and that, you know, they, they sent him. Odds are he wouldn't have been able to serve on that ship. But they also treated, we talked in another episode, they also treated that ship like it was a punishment and only senior, very qualified senior agents get those postings. And only... Um they can't be ordered to do it. Yeah, it has to be voluntary. So him being assigned to that and it being punitive doesn't make any sense. I assumed McGee's lack of reaction to being impaled on that glass at the end of season nine, I think that is, um, was related to the adrenaline of the situation. But the thing is that it didn't put him down for very long is when it was like, what? 
Um, he basically just, they kind of got him in some treatment and he went right back to work. <laughs> it's like, okay. Yeah, that's a life model decoy right there. If I ever saw one. Hopefully one that writes better team fan, fan fiction. fiction. Yeah. yeah. <sighs> okay. So we got to do at least one quick one in advances timeline. It would have been funny if Tony had said, look, dude, I don't actually mind the fan fiction, but you need to up your craft a little bit. <laughs> or you know, cause like if you're gonna write fanfic about me, you know, could you at least like get the biographical information right? I'm never gonna get laid again with that kind of thing out there. <laughs> you're just not you're not bringing your A game to the table, Elf Lord. Get it. <laughs> And, and he gives him recommendations for, and oh, this would be hysterical. He hands him a couple of business cards. These are the ghostwriters I use. <laughs> <laughs> you know what would be great is if Tony actually wrote a book, you know, a real one, and it did like a thousand times better than 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 Deep Six did. Yeah. Well, I I would put that in. Um different context but i did put that in overqualified and eventually john's going to ask him or noah's going to ask him um so you said you spite wrote a book you know what was that about and he'll eventually tell him what that it was about sort of revenge for deep six but then he discovered he didn't really like the whole writing the book part of it <laughs> so that's why he had, <laughs> so that's why he's a ghost writer now he's like because he tells him he says you know he says when he's explaining why he's not going to be why he wants to be a cop instead of write keep writing his books is because he's like well you know i kind of spite wrote the first book but i don't really enjoy that part of it and so you know they're hooking me up with a ghost writer and an editor and and uh they're going to do the. They're going to do that part of it. I'm just going to give them the case. The casework. So, yeah, I found that I was very entertained by that. That he wrote a book out of spite, but it doesn't come up what what the spite was. So, but the spite was totally about McGee. That he spite wrote a bestseller. Yeah, he did spite get his sniper creds in another story. That's true. Tony does stuff out of spite. <laughs> I don't mind him being like, he's like, he doesn't, he tries not to be a spite. I, that's why I tend to think of him is he tries not to be a spiteful person, but he will do, you know, if it's not going to harm anybody, he will do some spiteful things. <laughs> Captain passive aggressive. So I think in Vance's timeline, the obvious place, and we've talked about this, I do think the best um, use of dead air is Tony using it for leverage to get transferred to Hawaii. Yeah, agreed. It's like, well, you see, since you're keeping them on, if you don't want me to make a big stink about this huge procedural breach, I'm thinking I need a new posting. I'm thinking Hawaii sounds about right. Yep. But a that's a spiteful position, and I like it. But also, I think it's irresponsible because it still leaves um, Ziva and Tim in the field with the ability to endanger the life of somebody else. Well, I don't think I don't I don't think what happened to Tony is a secret. I think um, anytime I've written where they get to stay instead of get fired, um, the rest of the agency knows and won't work with them. Right? They just they just refuse. I wouldn't. I wouldn't work with their asses. Um. But I like the idea of um, him saying no, 
during Agent of Float. And so you do realize that you can't put me on a ship, that it's, you can't order me onto a ship, that it's voluntary. Right? And by the way, have you talked to the doctor on the ship to ask him how he feels about having a plague survivor on his ship in the middle of the Mediterranean? Or wherever he ends up? I think he was in the Gulf, right? Because he's down in South America at some point. So, yeah. did you ask how they feel about that? Oh, you Just didn't know checking. I had the plague? You did really you haven't read, read my our file, have you? File? I mean, did you read our service jackets before you just arbitrarily decided you were going to distribute us around the agency? But that's, now that's him saying no. It doesn't get him promoted, though. No. But that could be the impetus for Vance to really read Tony's file. And give him his, well, like, you don't, look, you, you're not staying with Gibbs. That Vance he, says. He could Tony call says, fine. Yeah. Okay. He could call him back in and go, I just read your file. You're right. I hadn't read it. I made a judgment about you. Because Vance made a judgment about Tony. This is when they got off to a bad start. They got off to a bad start. Not over Shepard. They got over to, off to a bad start over Jean Benoit and that unsanctioned op. And Vance felt like, basically, reading between the lines, that Tony should have known it was unsanctioned. And not gone along with it. Because he chewed Tony out, basically. Because Vance had to, oh, basically, be present when... Um, when Jean Benoit made her accusation about Tony killing her father, that was false because the shepherd actually did it. Vance was there and overseeing the NCIS side, NCIS side of things. And that's when his hate on for Tony started was with that accusation from, from Jean, because the whole op was brought under scrutiny and Vance really dinged him for it. So if Vance never looks beyond that, it could explain a lot about his attitude for Tony. So if Tony says no about getting put afloat, it says, have you ever read my file? And then says, says, you know, you let me know when you've actually looked into this. And Vance realizes that he's made some bad assumptions, but he's still kind of a dick. So he pulls Tony in and says, you know, what I see here is that you were due for promotion about four years ago or three years ago. And if you don't want me to send you on a, if you don't, if you don't want to go to a boat and you don't want to resign, you're going to get your own team. Here's your ticket. Just deal with it. So that could be, it could be, it's not exactly a spite promotion, but it's a little bit like you don't want this for some reason, but you've definitely earned it. So if you're not going to go where I tell you to go, this is what you're going to get. It's a little bit of a spite promotion. Cause I really do think that Tony, um, doesn't that's the reason why he avoids promotion is I think he doesn't want that responsibility for whatever reason um and it could just be that he hates paperwork I mean it could be as simple as that that he doesn't want to be that to deal with any more paperwork than he already has to do but honestly on Gibbs's team it's my headcanon that he does all the paperwork that he's already doing all of it he probably yeah. have less paperwork if he was just the senior agent in charge because Gibbs makes him do his paperwork too. Although <laughs> I don't I don't think Gibbs can pass off doing employee reviews. But maybe. I have seen people write it that way that Tony does the reviews too. Um, but I don't think yeah, I don't I don't think that uh, I, I don't know what it's clear he avoids promotion in canon. I'm just not, I don't have a really solid bead on what the motive for that is. I've seen people write it that he 
feels like he didn't do a good job when he was in charge with the team. And so he's self-critical and doesn't think he deserves another shot. But I just don't buy that at all. I think I don't think he's that unrealistic that he doesn't see that dynamic for what it was. So it the show doesn't give us a good motive for him not uh, taking that promotion. So not taking any promotion, not ever trying to move up. So we have a different plot drift at some point about Tony finding his ambition. I want to know where he lost it. He did lose he, it somewhere. Did it fall out of his pocket when he was at the church waiting on that asshole to show up when she didn't? Could be. Well, I certainly kind of implied that heavily. in the. Uh... Or is it in the sewer where that serial killer tossed him? Yeah. <laughs> Well, I actually think that a lot of those points that um, writers often use to break Tony down and keep him more attached to the team could be point jumping off points for Tony finding his ambition. You just have to have him think a little bit differently. You know, it could just be like after those events in the sewer, which is season one, missing is season one, I think, uh, that Tony um, is just having a beer with a friend and the friend just gives him a different perspective and says, dude, you got you. And you you were woke up handcuffed to a pipe next to a corpse and someone who was about to be a corpse. And you got you and him out. What the hell are you being self-critical about? Wouldn't it be interesting that if at different points during during the series that he actually had this, this point of contact where he could have conversations about these things. Um, John McGarrett would be a, a great one. Um, where he just occasionally calls John up and says, hey, listen to what happened. And he's like, you know, downplaying, you know, and John's like, well, Tony, you did an awesome job. I'm so proud of you. Because no one else is saying it to him. Well, it's, it is, it is in my character bio, my, his family bio that I have for Tony, that his uncle is um, um, Dave Rossi. So what if he's calling his uncle? Yeah, I mean, yeah, that would be cool too. You know, Dave Rossi. You know, so I, I so I hear you were um, chained to a serial killer. Well, more spree killer, actually. She was, yeah, she wasn't. She was just kind of, you know, she was just. It was just this one group that she planned to wipe out. So right. vigilante. Mm -hmm. I don't know, Uncle Dave. What do you think she is? But it would be cool if he had somebody just in his life in the background that he could reach out to to, to give him perspective. But if he's got situations, if he's got something like that, I probably would use um, uh, chained as my catalyst event because um, I don't think it gets very far. Uh, otherwise, he hasn't been getting very good perspective from this person all along, right? I do think things kind of went south when Z when Kate joined the team. I think the dynamic of the team changed. That's definitely my headcanon. Is it the dynamic of the ch team changed when Kate joined? I think Gibbs pandered to her need to believe she was better at the job than she actually was. Um, she made a lot of weird false accusations in the early in the series about sexism and stuff. Um, when in reality, she was being treated like the team probationary agent and she called it sexist. So... Um, I think I have it in a story somewhere where Tony um, actually says to Gibbs, no, what's being sexist is giving into it. That's being sexist. But I, so I do think their dynamic changed when Kate came on board. And I think that, um, I don't know that episode either, but I think that things changed a lot. And I think that 
that Tony and Gibbs both changed in unhealthy ways to ingratiate, not ingratiate, but to integrate Kate into the team. Um, like, I don't know why they continued for years, for the whole two years she's on the show, pandering to this idea that she was a good profiler, when they kept showing over and over and over again that she wasn't. Not saying that she wasn't a good, she could, she could have been a good agent, but she was not a good profiler. Kate actually um, had shitty ethics. She had really shitty ethics. She liked to preach about it, but look at why she had to leave the Secret Service. And the first time she got out of line with me, I'd have thrown it in her face. If I'd have been Tony, the first time she questioned my my morals, my ethnic, my ethics, my my work product, I'd be like, so which one of us had to resign from the Secret Service for banging her partner? That is you, right? Mm-hmm. Who and not just the not just a, who banged the president's football carrier? Who was on the president? Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, he who, was, who was on he the was carrying the nuclear football while they were the pre, on the president's protection detail? That wasn't me. Yeah, that's an interesting point, Phoenix. That Tony was able to find a compromising picture of um, uh, Kate that was real, and she had the fake one of Tony. <laughs> That could have gotten him hurt. Yeah. And there are certainly people who have explored that concept that Tony got hurt as a result of that picture. But she and Abby were both being willfully blind with that stunt. You know, that was actually a little more than willfully blind. I, I think it bordered on... Um, uh, it's, it was honestly kind of homophobic. Mm-hmm. Is that, is that the right way? I mean, they were implying that he was gay and that it was a problem. Well, and that they knew that a fake picture of him that implied he was gay would be enough to shut him up. Because they knew the danger. Well, that actually implies that they knew the danger it would present him. So it, so it essentially becomes a death threat. Or at least a beating threat. Because either they thought... Tony I read a story was... once where Gibbs, who didn't understand his email, accidentally forwarded that whole picture, that picture to the entire agency. I didn't read the whole thing. I closed it because I couldn't handle it. But I think I started that one too, and it got really angsty because I think Tony did almost get killed. But Gibbs didn't do it on purpose. Yeah, it was an accident. But um, but I think I think that the part I noped out was when, as I recall, it was pretty early on. Was when Gibbs wouldn't back down. He wouldn't apologize, and he wouldn't back down from his what he did. And I was like, this is going to go in a bad place. I'm I got to get out of this. Um. Which is fine. It, it it was fine as far as the storyline goes, but storyline that angsty is just, I know it's not not, not for me. Um, but yeah, Kate, Kate, they had it at times. Kate has so much potential. And then they'd go and they'd have her be really, you know, pull the profiler card and be really wrong about things. And I swear every time she had to profile something, she was wrong. It also was not the only time that she exhibited homophobia. No, it was she. She did several times. Um, it, the one that really sticks out for me the most is the one where um, uh, Tony kisses, yeah, the 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 person who, who killed Patchy. Yeah, who was pretending to be a woman or became a woman to hide. I think. Um, I, no, so I, th I think. I think. I think transgendered. So that was uh, that was transphobia and homophobia because she made fun of Tony for kissing um, a, a woman that used to be a man. But then she also called her he, she. 
but didn't she i thought she she called she used another i thought she used another term also that was really pejorative like female or something like that something like that she was terrible it was just really ugly i mean kate exhibited a great deal of transphobia and homophobia during that episode and it was disgusting and she brought her religion into her job into her profiling way too much which if, I, I don't think that you can. Yeah, she was very narrow minded. And, and for someone who had been like, and, and they also made her eventually, this is this is bad characterization, is they eventually made her almost sort of like puritanical in her outlook and in her judgments about Tony. And yet she's the one who had been in a wet t-shirt contest. She had been boning a guy who was, she shouldn't be boning at work. Um, so that made her a hypocrite. You know, you connect the dots, she's a hypocrite on top of everything else, except I think they were just, I think it was just bad writing. But I do like Fix that where Tony calls her out on the homophobia. Especially in the Voss episode. Like, I remember reading, and I don't remember the, the rest of the story at all, but I remember um, uh, her, in the, in the Fix, she makes a comment about, you know, Tony kissing a man. And Tony looks up from... Um, his his work and says actually she was a woman but even if she had been a man it wouldn't have been the first time and it certainly won't be the last and it was like yeah <laughs> yeah when tony gets upset about the whole thing with voss my total i totally believe that the reason is because he finds out that he was making out with the person who killed a friend of his i and agree with that i think it was that... more about the murder or part than it was the transgender part so, but anyway, so if Vance, I think Vance could promote Tony easily um, around the whole. Um, the assignment um, probably is the best time for Vance to do a promotion for Tony. I think I'd want to, and it also gives you a chance to put Vance in a little bit better light a little bit. With him not, you know. Although, you know, what I know about Vance's character um, makes him horrific. Yeah, there's that. I mean, his fake identity puts every single thing that he's ever touched as a law, law enforcement officer into the realm of fraud. And it endangers um, justice over and over and over again. And, for, and when he becomes the director of the agency, for the entire fucking agency. <laughs> That's great, Ellie. Oh, come on, Kate. It's like I've never had to make out with Gibbs for the job. And it'd be really funny if Gibbs just looked up and grinned. <laughs> like he was having a fond mem like it was a fond memory. <laughs> a very fond memory. So yeah, those are good times, Tony. <laughs> yeah, he's a great kisser. <laughs> and then you could just you could just do a nod to that that trope, right? Which is like it's, it's, we just don't have to go undercover in gay bars anymore. It's interesting. <laughs> we haven't had a gay bar in a long time. I miss them. It'd be like <laughs> maybe that guy on the other side of the of the petition. He's like, yeah, because I'm getting them all. <laughs> Why well, you need to share the gay bars? <laughs> <laughs> Or he could go, yeah, I'm getting them all. Why do you think we asked for Denelzo's help last month? <laughs> <laughs> what type of team would he have? I actually think realistically with what I think Tony's strengths are, he would ultimately do best on a 
probably counterintelligence or counterterrorism team. But I don't think that's in, in canon. I don't think his interests go there. So I think realistically, he'd probably ultimately wind up on a general crime team if he's with NCIS. Probably general crime or major case or something. Uh, but point note, note if you do if you do write something like this where Tony leaves and he goes to Pearl Harbor, right? That is not a small NCIS office. No, it's huge. It is Pearl Harbor's huge. It is stunning the number of stories I have read where Tony's in Hawaii and it's got like three people staffing in the place, right? It's like, nah, dog, that's not the way that works. Pearl Harbor is a huge office for NCIS. I imagine that Pearl Harbor's NCIS is um, pretty close to what we see in, in Canon um, NCIS as far as like the, the amount of people, the size of the building. Um, yeah, they'd have their own forensics because, I mean, yes, NCIS does have offices where they absolutely have to in other countries, but as much as they can cover um, from U.S. soil, that they they certainly would prefer to. So there's any there's a lot that they would they would cover um, from the auspices of the not to mention the sheer amount of of navy ships that go through there so and, and while actually, an agent afloat can handle small crimes i imagine that pearl harbor is responsible for sending um, major case response to a ship if there's a if, if if something really hinky fucking goes down in the pacific yeah yeah if they're in the pacific i would think so um yeah, the the base, the Pearl Harbor, the the joint base Hickam um, covers. Um, Dark points out more territory than any other on Earth. Uh, so, yeah, it's not a tiny office, and it's actually pretty easy to get that information off the NCIS site. The amount of teams, the the what, what kind of teams. So when they talk about um, the teams they have in Pearl at the Pearl Harbor office. And it is a it is a field office. It's not a resident agency or a, a resident unit. It is a field office. And when they talk about the, the they they talk about having the full complement of major case, general crimes teams, FSVU. Um, so it's big enough that they actually have a dedicated family and sexual violence team at that office. So it's not a tiny shop. So really, but I think that sometimes writers write it that way to, to give the implication that Tony's being punished by putting in this, being put in this podunk um, uh, posting. I think I just kind of yeah. want to ignore that Pearl Harbor is basically the, the Navy hub for the South Pacific, um, for the South Pacific. Yeah. And that they also, or they want to have him um, have reason to like have letting the police handle a bunch of Navy cases is because they don't have the manpower to do it. And that's not, I would say that's not good lampshading. If you want like Steve's team to be handling a bunch of Navy cases, you find the reason then Pearl Harbor is a tiny office because it doesn't, it's, that's not good lampshading. That's okay. The Hawaii field office um, is headquartered aboard Pearl Harbor Naval base on Hawaii. Oahu, mm -hmm. Hawaii, as the nation's strategic f 
focuses shift towards the Pacific region. HIFO's multifaceted capabilities are in high demand in the areas of general crime, counterintelligence, cyber polygraph tech, actual um, analytical support, and technical surveillance countermeasures. Subordinate offices, NCIS, RA, uh, those are like their, the, the small offices, right? Yeah. Um, there's one, two, three. There are three support resident agencies in... in uh, and apparently there is a resident agency in Pearl Harbor. Just like... I, I, I wonder if it's a, a RA that... Because uh, it's weird they'd have a field office at the base at Pearl Harbor and have a resident agency at, the, at Pearl Harbor. That's... Makes you think they're doing something different at that RA. They used to talk about FSVU at, for the Hawaii field office. They might have removed it, which is how I even ever learned that um, that, that they don't call it SVU at NCIS. They call it FSVU. Because I, it actually it's funny sometimes the research little deep, the little things that send you into a research spiral. Um, because I was reading a story where Tony joins a team and he is one of four agents in Hawaii. That's all there is. It's just the four of them. That's it in Pearl Harbor. And I went, that doesn't make any sense. Hawaii is huge. And so I went to go look it up and I was like, oh, that information is actually readily available. Uh, family, F, at the F is family and FSVU. And the S is not special. It's sexual, family and sexual violence. As opposed to S SVU, as we know it, is a uh, um, special victims unit. Special victims, as opposed to um, family and sexual violence. Although I'm double checking the the S because I really thought it was sexual violence, but with the F in there, it makes sense that it would be sexual violence. Yeah. Because the other thing in special is usually children, children and right. Special covers like children. It covers sexual violence. We're looking it up. She's looking it up. The royal we. <laughs> but yeah, it is always cute when I see some writer um, write uh, Pearl Harbor. It's a tiny office. It's it's really amusing. Especially when you consider the sheer number of Navy vessels that pass through for Pearl Harbor or permit or. or semi-permanently stationed there. I mean, I want to tell them this isn't actually real life, but just go watch Battleship. You'll get a feel for it. <laughs> you know what's really like sometimes when people ask really questions that they could have got it's like literally if you put that in Google the first answer will be your answer. Sometimes I just want to like put a link into the Google search that I did to find that answer and give them that link instead of the actual answer. But that's passive-aggressive. Which I'm not opposed to. You know, okay, Will Graham might make good money, but considering what happens to Will Graham, I don't think he makes enough money. <laughs> uh, no kidding. <laughs> I mean, can you really make enough money to make up for the fact that he ended up in a bromance with a cannibal serial killer? I don't think so. <laughs> That was a little bit more than a bromance where her father's <laughs> will. I mean, come on. I mean, I have never seen so much sexual tension <laughs> between two men on primetime TV in my life. I mean, it was just like 
they're not even trying. They're not. They're not even pretending that that they're not doing this. Okay, I think they took the FSVU um, thing out because it's not even on the NCIS website anymore, which is how I ever even learned the acronym. So they're calling it something else now, but I don't know what the new name is because I'm not finding any reference to. I mean, they were all up in that murder husband thing. Murder husbands. <laughs> I think just crazy. I think that if you're willing to set the blood drive from a cannibal, you have surpassed Brave, and it's just straight up crazy. But um, it was in that was some intense shit. I mean, it was just like, and honestly, sometimes you'll see stills from from Hannibal, and you'll think, okay, wait, is that some industrious fan artist who's fa who's who's photoshopped that, or is that from the actual show? <laughs> Because Hannibal's all up in Will's grill and Will mm -hmm. doesn't seem to mind. It's like, did they Photoshop from that the woman out of that and put Hannibal in, or <laughs> uh, that do, you, a, do you mean when he's shot? being? Do you mean when he's being stabbed? Right, and it looks like they're having sex. Yeah, it looks like they're fucking. They both have their fuck faces on during that scene, which is deeply unfortunate on like a hundred different levels. Okay, so they removed the name of the team explicitly because um, they did used to mention that they had family and sexual violence unit, but now it's called the family family and sexual violence program. Um, but they don't cons they don't actually explicitly have teams, I guess, any more designated. Hmm. That, but here's the link for that on the on the NCIS page. They should make it hard to find that. Yeah, that's the moment. But do you remember? Did you, do you remember in the show? I think it's in season two or whatever when Hannibal is banging Alana, and Will's in bed by himself. I think he's in bed by himself, and they kind of have they keep like have them on the screen at the same time, and it sort of makes you think that it's like Hannibal. Did anybody else feel like that? You it was he was fucking both of them. Oh, he's in bed with Margot. That's right. But it was it was almost like Hannibal and Will were actually having sex. It was the weirdest thing. I was like, <laughs> and I think we all saw it that way, right? Like Hannibal and Bill, Will were banging because it was it was like this side by side, back and forth. Um, thank you, Ellie. That's on that page too. There's a link to. Um, I talk about the React team in the story that um, Kira's waiting for me to get to her. Uh, and I, th oh, that actually, I was going to say, that's not the first time I've mentioned React, but it is the first time anybody will have seen me mention React, because I wrote something else about the React team in a different story, which re the React team is NCIS's answer to SWAT. And it stands for um, Regional Enforcement Action Capabilities Training. It's a team that supports investigations and high-risk enforcement operations within the United States. Because someone gets right up in Ian, Tony's face and asks him why he's not React. Tony's all, uh, well, could you bother me about this some other time? I think that would actually be a good one. Huh? To kind of explore. What, React? Yeah. Because when he, um, where I have it is when they last parted ways, Tony was eligible to join React. 
and somebody wants to know why that did never happen. <laughs> but I also mentioned, I was going to say, it's because I, th I thought I'd mentioned React before in its fic, but I didn't because it's actually in the opening scene of the sequel to DeNovo, which Tony is being backed up by the React team. So there, you guys thought I was fic teasing <laughs> you before. There's a big fic tease. <laughs> That's like a that's like a a slowly undoing your zipper kind of. <laughs> <laughs> so this is actually a very useful page if anybody writes NCIS. Um, like I thought now now that I said it's a very useful page, I feel like I need to go and like um, put it in the podcast link library. Good Shit. idea. Um, but it is a useful page about the types of things that they do and the types of teams that they have. Uh, <sighs> So there you go. So we covered Tony departing in all of the, uh, under all the directors. Go us. I think they more than proved that they don't actually need Kate since they never replaced her on the team. And eventually well, Ducky does uh, forensic profiling. I think even when Kate was there, wasn't Ducky doing some of the heavy lifting on the profiling? I think so. Okay, and now I need to do the other thing. Since I mentioned this one too, I'll put this one up. Right, because, well, the thing is, is um, Abby didn't stay in her wheelhouse. Mm. And Abby probably didn't do half the work she should have been doing. Because she acted like she only had Gibbs on her plate. That that's all she had, which is not true. No, there and honestly, honestly, any any old agent just being able to walk into a forensics lab where there's evidence out is unrealistic. It's ridiculous. It's In absolutely fact, ridiculous. Her her general uh, incompetence on that front is the reason why Chip was able to uh, frame Tony. Yeah, because if Tony hadn't been in that lab and, and tossed that apple core into Abby's trash, um. Chip would have had a hard time getting evidence he needed on Tony to fake that murder. Yeah, and and even the 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 fact that she plays her music so loud to the point that people walk in when her back is turned and she doesn't hear them. Is, uh, people could walk out with evidence anytime they wanted. They basically set the stage for that. I mean, you could write a fic that actually is just exploring the consequences of evidence going missing because somebody just walked in and took it. And it doesn't matter if they get who did it on film. It's irrelevant. The evidence is tainted. The evidence is gone. If they get it back, the evidence is tainted. <coughs> All they have to do, you could have a technician, anybody, get bribed, get a bunch of money to walk into her lab and pick up evidence and walk out with it. They don't even have Good to deal. take it out. Of, they don't even have to take it out of the building. They just have to take it out of the range of the cameras, and leave it. Turn around and walk out of the building. They haven't taken the evidence. They haven't actually stolen anything. All they did is move it out of camera range, and that case gets thrown. That evidence gets thrown out. But all they really have to do is actually even just open the bag on camera and handle the evidence, and then the evidence is tainted. Mm -hmm. And then they well, the thing is, they, I would presume they'd want to get out of the building, so they wouldn't want to get caught right away. So, but yeah, I mean, they could, you could very easily taint the evidence and not do anything but walk in and touch it and get a case thrown out. And it would, they'd probably lose their, their, their certification to have a lab, that lab, that specific lab certification would be lost. 
Well, the way they wrote Gibbs, you're left to assume with the level of incompetence he allowed to happen in some areas. I don't think Gibbs was a Mary Sue at all. He had way too many problems. Um, I think that you are left to assume that Gibbs has dirt on literally everybody. And he practically swims in white male privilege. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> and the only thing that makes sense about him is that he has um, that he has dirt. He has to. On everyone. And that's why he gets away the things he gets away with. God damn it. Did I forget to do the Thursday prompt? <sighs> did you? I did. And you already did it. You got the whole month done. I know. And Thursday is supposed to be something pretty with Harry. I'll have to go put it up now. And I even talked about on my podcast how, how I had been reliably for, informed that it was Thursday. <laughs> you did say that last night. Tis true. Oh. Yeah, my props for this for the Harry Potter thing actually tell a story. There's a whole story there about parcel magic and about Harry's relationship with Hermione, Harry's relationship with Draco. And then the last one is about the, is about the three of them. So it's a, so my prompts are actually telling like a triad story. Um, so I just told a story with collages. <laughs> I know, right? You're welcome. I'm having to sit on my hands here. Um, yeah. So I do like Tony getting his own team. Uh, I just, I've never, other than, other than DeNovo, I don't think I've ever, ever really explored it much because it's, I find it more satisfying to get him out of NCIS. But after all of this discussion, I think that it might be satisfying to have him stay. And just shove his awesomeness in everybody's face. That's right. Or, and send him to Pearl Harbor. (laughs) for reasons but why do we have to wait why can't steve have to have some kind of conversation in ncis headquarters why do we have to wait five whole years for tony and steve to meet why can't tony get his own team and get his navy seal at the same time i think he could well i did start that one team that one story where i don't remember how did i put it i don't remember how i had them meet but i had them meet Doing something for NCIS, and they're in a relationship at the start of the story already, but it's obviously clandestine kind of thing. And when Steve's in town, he comes and spends it with Tony. Um, and this is when Ziva joins the team. And uh, no, it's not a Sentinel one. This is one where I started this right before the last rough trade. Um, Steve and uh, Tony protest Ziva's inclusion on the team because he doesn't. He doesn't, you know, he's, and he's told to let it alone. And uh, he escalates it to the inspector general because he doesn't feel like she's met passes the, she's being given access to things she shouldn't have access to with her clearance level. Um, and so the inspector general takes it to the director and the director calls Tony in and says, you need to let this alone. And Tony says, I can't let this alone. And the director tells Ziva. So Ziva starts following Tony and Tony Yes, this is that one. And Tony, Ziva starts following Tony, discovers Tony's in a relationship. And so spitefully, she tries to sink Steve's career by reporting Steve as being in a homosexual relationship. 
And Steve's commander just kind of scratches his head and sits on it. So Ziva tries again. And so between the two attempts, um, this general, this commander of, of the chief of naval operations reaches out to General Hammond and says, I need to get somebody in a different place on, a, on an unreachable assignment for a while <laughs> so that I don't have to call them in there. They aren't obligated to answer to a, a recall to answer for this, this whole thing. And they bring Tony and Steve both into the program. And this is on your hard drive. Almost finished. No, I started it. Oh, I plotted it. And I'm at the point where uh, Jenny tells, well, that Ziva's following them around. So I'm at, I'm at that point in the story. Sony's already gone to the inspector general and the director's told him to let it go. And Gibbs has told him to let it go. And he's like, I can't let it go. So, yeah, I think, I think I'm going to say I, I named it blowback or something like that. I named it something. Yeah, I was literally working on this the day before Rough Trade. It's what I was working on to keep my brain from starting Rough Trade in, in April. I think Ziva would lose track of Tony and Steve if they disappeared into the the uh, the Stargate program. Um, oh, yeah. Uh, and I think Shepard would be furious because she has plans for Tony and that would totally interfere. Mm -hmm. She wants Tony to stay in his place, stay in his lane, and keep quiet. And he doesn't. And so they start trying to find Tony and that brings scrutiny onto Ziva and things get handled. Well, that's true, but I don't think that's the way that would go. Well, what I would say is that Ziva poking around in Navy business is one thing. But when you mix in the Stargate, Ziva poking around in homeworld security business is a whole new ball game. She's biting off more than she can chew, and she doesn't even fucking know it. I think that's not accurate. Um, I think that the SecNav would actually be in the know about um, the SGC because it is primarily um, uh, staffed by Marines. Staff on Marines. And so uh when you get to be the Secretary of the Navy, you get read into situations like the Stargate program and, and homeworld security. Um so no, he's not going to pitch a fit about one Navy SEAL uh disappearing into the Stargate program. So he probably wouldn't even be the first Navy SEAL to end up in the Stargate program for one reason or another, because those are the kind of assets the SGC should realistically be looking at. But Ziva and Ziva and Shepard, thinking that they're just making problems for Tony, wind up bringing down their own house cards. Because, you know, and the other SEALs would have no idea. I mean, that's compartmentalized. When, when you get an assignment like the Stargate program, you don't tell anybody where you're going. You say, I'm being shipped. I'll see you. I'll see you later. I've got an assignment. I'll be stationed elsewhere. Yeah. It's not like they all know where each other are stationed. They don't. It reminds me of a line I wrote in um, a Stargate fic where Rodney is actually staying on Earth because um, he got pissed off because the Atlantis mission went from civilian-led to military-led, and he quit um, the Stargate program, or he tried, and they've kind of like quarantined him at Area 51 where they try to get a hold of him, um, just trying to calm him down, and they send John, who's the new leader of the expedition, to have a talk with McKay, and 
McKay is, you know, pretty enamored with John's appearance, and um, it's kind of hard not to. Um, and uh, he doesn't want to like him, but he does, d despite it. You know, he likes him despite of it. But he's still saying, no, I'm, I'm not going to go. Yeah, where John leans in the doorway, and John tells him, you know, um, Ronnie says, well, I'll see you around. And John smiles at him and says, no, you won't. And I was like, I'm so proud of myself that I wrote that. <laughs> but that's what happens when people go into situations like that. You know, John was going what he thought was a one-way mission. Uh, he won't be seeing any of those people again, as far as he's concerned. And he's, he's reconciled to that. And if by some chance, you know, it isn't a one-way mission, then that's like dessert. <laughs> It's a happy surprise <laughs> because people going into those situations don't have those kinds of expectations. So if Steve and Tony disappear into the Stargate program, they don't tell anyone where they're going. No. Tony gets reassigned. SecNav probably makes the assignment. And no one's going to be up in arms over it because that's not what professional men in the military do. And Shepard might be pissed because the assignment would come from over her head. Because I do not believe, if they've read in Secnav, there's no reason for them to re read in Shepard. Especially since she's an unknown quantity. I think she, I, th I think it'd be above her pay grade. Way above. So, um, Secnav makes the assignment. He sends Tony to, he assigns him to a classified location. It, Jenny doesn't have any say in it, but she asks Eva to look into it. Find out where he went. And Ziva arrogantly, of course, thinks she can. So maybe she tells Jenny. Um, well, he's seeing this guy in the Navy. And they start looking into McGarrett. Bad move. Because by now, McGarrett's file's been flagged, right? For anybody poking at it. And so the SGC, Homeworld Security, is going to know that... Well, I think anybody poking a Navy SEALs flag or file is going to get... Unlock on their door. Uh, well, not in CIS, I don't think, because they don't necessarily know that every name they run, if they're a SEAL or not, until they run it. And I go, okay, that's a Navy SEAL. Moving on. Um, they probably run the names of people all the time. Oh, well, I was, you know, just as a matter of who are you on base with, they get the names, they run them. So I think it would be noted that they looked into it, but I don't know that it would cause too much scrutiny unless their file was specially flagged. And Steve's would be for that. Yeah. Although they already know Ziva's a problem. So I think anybody she looks into would be scrutinized. Because she's not NCIS. She's Mossad. Even if she's using NCIS equipment. And they have to know exactly what computer she's on in that building. And what she's up to at any given time. Well, the way I have it is that they don't know at first what the motive is or who sent the information. But they figure it out, and they realize that, the, that it was never about Steve, that it was always about Tony, and that's when they start looking into Ziva. Because it's not obvious to them, when somebody's trying to torpedo Steve's career, it's not obvious that it was about Tony. I think I have it in my plot notes that it's Jack who says, well, why do we assume it's about him? Why about not the guy he's with? And then they start looking into it. And when she tries to make the complaint again is when they figure out exactly who's making it. Yeah, exactly. Well, also, I would also question is whether or not Ziva had the ability to figure out the, whether or not um, what what Steve did in the Navy. The idea, um, the, the identities of Navy SEALs are not like common knowledge. 
No, I don't think she did know what he did. All she knew was that he was Navy. Yeah. Because she gets, you know, um, well, the way I have it is that she actually breaks into Tony's apartment and plants a camera. Asshole. And, yeah. And I just so made a terrible actually, face. You assholes, Eva. <laughs> so she sees a, um, a Navy person in Tony's apartment and them kissing or something. And so she sends pictures. And the Navy, of course, is instantly suspicious. Like, where is this? This looks like it's inside of somebody's dwelling. So, but yeah, exactly. The dark said that why is someone from Mossad trying to out a seal and stalk an NCIS agent? That's exactly the question they would be asking. So her attempts to submarine Steve to get revenge on Tony would, um, it's going to backfire. I don't remember if I, I think I called, actually, I think I may have called the story backfire. Maybe that's why I can't find it. It's because I was looking for blowback, but I think it's called backfire. Well, I'm terribly excited and looking forward to this. Yeah, that is what I call it. Call it backfire. Because the whole that was the whole point is the whole thing backfires on Ziva. Yes, when you have too many whips. And the thing is, I don't sometimes don't put them in the right place. So it's like, where did I put that? Because the unfortunate thing is that sometimes Word puts the file, of course, the last place I saved something. So you would not believe how many times I've had to go fish one of my stories out of the folder I have for Kira's beta work. <laughs> Like, where is it now? What did I call it? That's true. We are the same person. Actually, nobody's called me Kira in a while, you know? Um, now they will. I'm starting to think. She made it on the podcast. They're the same person. <laughs> someone's going to troll me now. Oh, somebody's going to do it just to be an asshole now is what they're going to do. But, um, yeah, it's been it's been a while. That some, some, I'm really fucking done. talented. So somebody sent me an email that says, Kira, I really did like this. Da, 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 da. And the thing is, if they were accidentally sending me feedback on one of your stories and calling me Kira, I would just send you the feedback. But they're sending me feedback on one of my stories and calling me Kira. <laughs> I'm like, you fucker. <laughs> or, dear Kira, I heard you on the podcast last night. Did you? Did you really? <laughs> did you really? <laughs> Which one of us? Which Kira was it? Kira one, Kira two. Actually, could you just call us by our real name now? Bob and Dick. <laughs> I'm Bob Kira. She's Dick Kira. Moving on. <laughs> if it wouldn't be really expensive, I would change my website to Bob Kira on the on on, <laughs> on April first just to troll people. <laughs> Once for April Fools, I changed the summaries of all my stories. That's <laughs> really time consuming. It was time consuming, but it was also funny because the summaries were all cracktastic. And I <laughs> had never written crack in my life at that point. Mm -mm -mm. What? Oh, good Lord. It's, it's, it's practically one o'clock. <laughs> Everybody needs to go to bed. It doesn't matter where you are, even if you are in, even if you're Claire, who it's, it's like 8 p.m., right, Claire? <laughs> <laughs> it's nearly dinner time at Claire's house. It's time for us all to you, go to bed. You go to um, bed, too. So we will uh, catch you guys later. Um, say good night, Jilly. Good night, everyone.